Welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing, the podcast about music and capitalism. We are recording live from Sardinia in the Tyrrhenian Sea. Um, that's half true. I actually am in Sardinia. Sam is in his Brooklyn house. Uh, if you can uh, tell the difference in audio quality, that's partially because uh, of the like the specific like in transit conditions that Saxon's recorded under, but also because as far as I can tell, he has smoked. 16 packs of unfiltered cigarettes since i last spoke to him <laughs> listen it's just easier to like roll the cigarette without the filter but i'm trying all right i'm trying i'm trying my best this is like the reverse of that like there's a uh, new morning or whatever the bob dylan album nashville skyline the bob dylan album where like he just stops smoking and all of a sudden he's got this like rich baritone voice it's the opposite of that it's just i don't think that that's why he's i don't know i i don't think that that's why he sounds like that on that record i think he just actually chose to like sing on that record to make a country record i think that's like total like uh What's the word? When, Self-mythologizing. Um, uh, he said it, but that doesn't fucking mean anything, given Dylan. Yeah, that, that means absolutely nothing. And I mean, just to let you know, I've been like doing my best to try to find you uh, like local uh, Sardinian folk music. But as far as I can tell, nothing is open on this entire fucking island. But that's a conversation for later. Um, so today on Money for Nothing, you'll be hearing an interview with Mike Park of Asian Man Records. Uh, Mike Park actually started an independent label back in 1989 with members of the seminal California ska band Skanking Pickle, uh, but it was 1996. But in 1996, Mike Park started Asian Man Records, and the label uh, has been continually run semi-notoriously out of Mike Park's mom's garage, and for the large part of it has really only been Mike himself and maybe like an assistant here or there. Um, and so I think in some ways the reason why I wanted to go ahead and talk to Mike Park is that uh, you can kind of think of Asian Man or I think of Asian Man as part of like the Discord records tree just in that like uh, as you'll hear in the interview like Mike was really influenced by Discord in deciding to start a record label and also like and how he wanted to run it and I think that this could best be summed up uh, by his uh, by the about page on Asian Man uh, where Mike writes that um, quote I do this for the love of music not for capitalist gain or status recognition I try my best to do do right things ethically and to believe in helping others instead of striving for profit over people. So as you can hear, Sam, like that, that's pretty, that's pretty strange in the, in the music industry, particularly about the things that we talk about uh, here on this show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, I, it's crazy. I mean, I've kind of dug into to this music uh, a little bit. I mean, this is very much a, like a, a you driven, you driven episode in your interest and in your knowledge of this. Label. Sure. Sure. I mean, First off, I think it's important to know that uh, I believe it's uh, Asian Man was the name of a, a Skankin' Pickle song. Right. I mean, yeah, 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 exactly, exactly, yeah. And also, like, you know, Mike Park, you know, from, from Korean-American origin is, like, and is, like, you know, very much, like, uh, been active politically uh, around, like, anti-racist and, like, anti-violence and anti-war um, campaigns. Like, their first time I was ever exposed to Asian Man was for... Uh, uh, a, a tour across the United States called plea for peace, which was like, was right after the Iraqi invasion. And, you know, Mike did his best to kind of like put together a bunch of like independent bands, like whether it be like ska or punk or like hardcore and kind of like set off across the U S playing, like, you know, having these like this massive, like bill of, you know, small, smaller bands, but bands that if you're like kind of in the quote unquote underground scene, you know, was, was a pretty impressive bill. And like, you know, have them play these 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 mass have them play these like independent venues and like you know really promote sort of like 
anti-war message and like anti-racism and things like that they've always been really active that way which once again kind of relates back to sort of like thinking about you know fugazi and like discord records and just like how that was run and i just feel like there's a lot of like similarities and like you know mike in the interview even kind of mentions that yeah i mean it's funny because it's like i knew about asian man a little bit from like a slight dabbling in like very late era ska punk like i knew the name from like some less than jake albums <laughs> or whatever yeah um, yeah i remember right. in fact the very 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 vividly the day in seventh grade when i was listening to less than jake was like should i be in, in that kind of like endless malleability that like early teenagehood gives it's like should i be into ska and I like looked at myself in the mirror and I'm like, nah, nah, I'm not going to be into ska. But like, <laughs> it was a close, it was a but close. But a lot of one. people were, right? A lot, no, a lot of people, a lot of people in, in, in my high school were, there was actually a band called the Third Wave Band because they were a third wave ska band. <laughs> nice. Um, that's, that's good. I like the but, irony. That's but good. So, so I had kind of forgotten about Asian Man Records um, even though it turns out that, that a bunch of bands that, that have been kind of continued to kind of bubble along in this scene. And, 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 and I think you talk with Mike about um, his ability to keep this going. But but actually, he resurfaced on my radar through a series of TikToks that he's done that, yeah, that are really yeah. fabulous of just like what it's like to run a small label. And, and, and my sense is like that longevity um, and that like continued productivity is one of the reasons that, that you were so interested in, in talking to him, right? Yeah, no, I think that's great. And I think that the way that you've, and I think the way that you frame that question kind of also like leads into all the reasons uh, that I wanted to talk to him in, in, in the sense that, you know, when he started this label, he kind of in many ways was one of the forefront independent labels for the third wave ska movement, which regardless of your one's feelings about the third wave Scott movement, I think at this point it's pretty undeniable that it, you know, it was a pretty viable scene that has kind of started to like, once again, bubble up again, in a sense, like there's been like kind of various ska pop sort of uh, bands like that have, that have been, been popping up, but you know, also like Asian man was the first label to like put out records by Alkaline trio, you know? And then the, yeah, like you said, like, yeah, like 20 plus years later, they're putting out, they're still putting out records by, the likes of Jeff Rosenstock or like Joyce Maynard, like other, other, other bands. AJ but yeah, like, I think, I think, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, but like, I think like one reason in particular is that like, as, as, as this suggests is that Asian man has just been around for so long and Mike has, and Mike Park has seen firsthand the format changes that music has gone through over like two plus decades of his existence. Like when, you know, when Asian man started, there was the internet, but it was awfully, obviously like nothing that it is now. And I think, like, second, I think as, as as formats have changed and, like, the ubiquity of social media and the rise of apps and streaming, you know, there's a question also that's arising around, like, what role does a small independent label with no financial backing, like, play in the musical landscape right now? And obviously it's, like, changed and it's very different than what it was back in the 90s or, like, earlier. And I think a third reason is that, like, you know, on the flip side of that that point, I was also thinking a little bit about some of the things that we talked about in our interview with like Matt Dryhurst, um, particularly in regards to um, envisioning a future where like smaller artists and labels can use like blockchain technology to their benefit. And I think that one thing that arose in that conversation is like one of the visions was sort of like this collective of labels maybe forming around a DAO, which is like a decentralized autonomous organizations, which we've talked about in the past. And like, I don't know, Sam, we talk a lot, a lot about big labels here and a lot about the big picture and like systematic issues, but there's something about the small labels, the kind of like the soldiers on the ground that like 
you know, on one hand can like offer us maybe a glimpse into alternative ways, like the music industry and the world at large, I guess, like could be run, but also like over the past 50 years have like continued to serve different roles, like in the music industry that I think is always been integral no matter what that role is to a lot that we talk about here when we talk about the industry and music scenes and like you know it's important to the history right but also like they're probably like the first to get overlooked when that history is written and so like i think all the more this is like all the more reason that like i wanted to you know talk to mike park like a a a label that's been around for so long has been doing it for so long and has like seen so many changes and yet is like still able to you know, carve out its little niche in, in, in the music, in the music world. Yeah. I think that's a good point. And I think, I think just that the sense of like the, the, the changing, and this is kind of like a, a broader capitalism point I think you're making is like the, these small businesses, right. And, and the ways that they can yeah. be now, admittedly you get kind of like a, what you might call like a seedling issue, right? Like for every, you know, for every tree that's growing seemingly impossibly out of a rock, you don't know how many seeds fell and just, died <laughs> but yeah yeah sure at, at the same time these like the flexibility and creativity of these small businesses and in the music industry these small labels and small promoters and small clubs and the ways that they allow a kind of like a a closeness to the ground um to to to, to, to enable them to be i think really flexible and, and re- often really important for driving new musical forms uh forward and, yeah and like yeah and I, th- I think i think the we can talk about these like bigger systematic things and we could talk about, you know, we could look into our crystal ball we can get galaxy brain and st- about things. But I think it's also important to just talk to the people that are like experiencing some of the things that we're talking about, like firsthand, because I think what arises out of that also is like, as you'll hear in this interview is interesting uh, experiences that maybe you wouldn't necessarily immediately think about, or also like interesting opinions, which also you wouldn't think that necessarily uh, you would uh, you would expect someone say like on like a, running a smaller label would would have as you'll hear and obviously I don't want to like, give the, too much of the interview away but like I think that you know uh, some of the opinions that Mike had about streaming were uh, strangely positive <laughs> which you know seems to push against like some of the some of the uh, sort of more generalized uh, I don't know music Twitter um, and like uh, opinions about you know the, the Spotify's and everything. So that kind of framework that frames the, the 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 reason why I wanted to talk to Mike, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Um, please rate and review us. You can follow us at M4N Podcast on Twitter, and always feel free to email us at moneyfornothingpodcast at gmail dot com. And obviously, you can also follow us on our Substack, which is moneyfornothing.substack.com. And yeah, uh, enjoy the interview with Mike Park of Asian Man Records. start let me just ask you like like what what originally motivated you to start a small independent label it was just out of necessity because i was in a band and no one wanted to sign us so i just thought this is the best outlet for me to release my own music i didn't want to rely on 
someone else to determine what I wanted to do. And so that's why I started, uh, actually before Asian man records, I was part of a collective called Dill records. Um, and then, um, I branched out and did Asian man in 96. Um, and, and like, w- like when you started Dill and like, were you guys, or was the collective, was it influenced by like any other, con- any other small labels? Well, I can't speak for them, but for me, I think because we're from the Bay area, we had a lot of, uh, cool things happening with lookout records and alternative tentacles. But I also, I really looked with fond eyes. I, I looked at discord and continue to look at discord as a, as an influence. I, I guess I would say more like Ian Mackay than discord, but uh, it's all under that same umbrella. Yeah, I, I can see that. I'm, I actually was going to kind of make, ask you a question much later about discord because I think, when I think about kind of definitively independent DIY labels that are like still functioning, I think the first ones that come to mind are like discord and Asian man. And I mean, you know, while you're both kind of very different in some ways, you're both very um, unapologetic about your views and how to like run things and generally try to stay, I think like insulated from the like juggernaut of the music industry. But I, I guess to jump to that question, like I'm curious, do you feel like Asian man over the years has become like more impacted by the like sort of effects or influence of like the major privately owned platforms like Spotify or Instagram. Cause like 20 years ago, it, it felt like maybe you can remain more like staunchly independent. Right. But like today it's like, maybe you feel there's like a sense of like, I think for a lot of artists and labels, there's like this obligatory sense that they like, need to be on the Spotify's or like the social me- media platforms. And of course these are all like run by like Silicon Valley startups and funded by major labels. So like, I mean, did you feel like maybe when you first started, like back in like 96, like you can kind of remain a little bit more independent? Well, it's all different. Even back in 96, you're still at the mercy of distributors. You still, as an independent label, let's use discord in the same sentence. We're still trying to get our records in chains. So that I would equate as the equivalent of, spotify or apple music it's just a different uh, medium now that people are listening to music but it was the same it was just we were doing it under our own guidelines and um without interference from any upper management so i think it's just it's just how you look at the times everything is is always going to be different and it's going to continue to change i don't know what the next in 20 years what's going to happen to music or how it's going to be listened to but uh I still feel very much in tune with my um, with the roots of how I started and the ideas. I feel like are even more so intact now than they were back in uh, the beginning. Well, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, I'd like to ask more about that. But like, let's just kind of stay like in the beginning. Like, so you mentioned distributors. Like, okay, so it's like nineteen ninety six, nineteen ninety seven. Like, how how are you actually getting this music into the hands of like fans and listeners, and how are you like even kind of getting the music in front of them so they could be curious about it. Was it mostly just sort of like orders off of the Asian man website or were you sending them out to small record stores or had you had, did you already have a deal with like a distributor? Yeah. So we had, uh, there was an indie label called, um, CD presents. It was, um, it's an old San Francisco label that all that put out the, like the original rap music for rap people, punk compilations, kind of like pretty, um, iconic compilations of the time. Um, and so we had met this guy named David Ferguson, who 
owned this company and it was kind of defunct, but they were, they owned a recording studio and they had also uh, distribution. They had two guys that worked there that would just be on the phones selling their records. So he offered us a deal to record at the studio and um, for a discounted rate and he would distribute our records. And we, at that time we had no business experience and we just said, yes, awesome. Free recording and uh, our record in stores. Okay. Sign us up. So we did have a little distribution in the beginning, but that guy never ended up paying us. Oh so, no. So we, he owed us about $13,000. Oh my and God. Just, just, he just folded. And so that was our early beginnings of how we learned how, how the business is run. There's a lot of uh, corruption and continues yeah, no, to be a lot Yeah, we corruption. definitely talk a lot about that um, on the pod. I'm, I'm curious. So like, where did you go from there? I'm, like when it came to like distrib- distribution. So then we met, there's a guy named Bill in Southern California. He's also a one man distro. He, he uh, runs Sounds of California. Great guy, actually. Um, I haven't talked to him in years, but he would really, you'd call him. This is, before, I mean, internet was available but it was still a lot of like physical calling and he would talk to me quite a bit and give me a lot of good advice and for a one person distro man he sold a lot and so we would just he'd fax us in like an order it's like hey to ship this in and he would pay us we'd give him 60 day terms and he would always pay us so that was a good feeling to finally like get paid but we knew our records were not widely distributed um it wasn't until later that we uh picked up with caroline records as a distributor that we were able to get in some of the chains at the time tower records um was the big one for us especially because it, it originated from the bay area where we're from so that was a cool feeling because that's where we grew up going to buy records and to have our records there was was a cool feeling. Yeah, I kind of remember I used to work at like a, I worked at like small record stores, but I also worked at like a chain record store. Like remember Warehouse Music? Of course. <laughs> of course. I remember Warehouse Music. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we had like this ancient like ordering system that was like, you know, black screen, green text kind of thing. And I remember like, you know, I would like secret and like we could like order records for customers and i used to just like secretly like put in records or put in orders for like punk records and records that i liked that no customer had ordered and just to like get them in the store in hopes that like maybe somebody would be interested in and buy it <laughs> no that's that's great where were you where are you based out of or where were you based yeah out? i'm in atlanta now but i grew up in southern california um i okay. i think i really i'm well at 16 i moved to the central coast of california so i was um mm. that's kind of you know i i think i was i was 16 i moved to santa maria I, and then i 18 i moved to santa barbara for like a couple of years so i don't know if you remember like just play music on state street but i was i was working there and then i was working at a warehouse in like golita and then also there was one briefly in like santa maria um that i worked at um but that's how i got like linked up with like you know i went to the plea for peace tour in golita at the living room and that like right. yeah i think it, it was really interesting i mean I'm, I'm i got like a list of questions and i'm kind of maybe jumping around but maybe since we we're talking about that since i mentioned plea for peace it, it looking back on it it just seems like such like an ambitious move and i'm like really kind of curious like how it kind of came together because you're you know famously sort of you know asian man has run out of your mom's garage and it's pretty much you and like one other person 
And I just think back to that time too. It was such like a very intense um, sort of time of nationalism that kind of felt like it was going on, like with the war and everything. And I'm just kind of curious, like how that all came about and like, you know, kind of what your experience was with that first tour. So it was kind of an extension of, I had done uh, in 98, a uh, Ska Against Racism tour. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And so in, I had bigger plans with plea for peace like the idea was to have it be located in san jose where i'm from and um be a youth center i wanted to open up a youth center um that was the original idea like let's have this place for kids like a gilman street or a vera project of the of the south bay of california and so that's how the idea started and then just to write off of uh the Scott against racism tour, I wanted to continue to do tours that were more than just like uh, reaching out for capitalist gains and um, giving uh, the patrons and the bands alike to uh, something to think about more than just um, having a rocking good time, which is awesome, which is what we want people to do. But at the same time, mm, maybe put something more pertinent uh, with, with that experience. Yeah, and like, like, I mean, did you ever run up? In, I mean, I know it's a pretty like it was a pretty like kind of insular community, you know, in the sense. But like, did you ever kind of run up, run up against any kind of like friction or pushback during that tour? No, definitely not. There's, there weren't. It would be silly if I, I couldn't imagine someone <laughs> pushing back against what we were doing. It was just uh, the hardest obstacles that I dealt with was getting bands, bigger bands to, to participate because, um, honestly, and no diss to the bands, this is what they did for a living. So unless they were compensated accordingly, it was hard to get bands to participate. Um, and that was the only, that was the only time in my, my mind that I personally thought maybe I should, I had been offered like a major label deal for my music early on. I thought maybe I should try to like get to that next level so I could do more, activist work through my music and that was like a brief period of like this this thought going through my head because i couldn't get it was hard to get bigger bands to participate oh okay that's super interesting i i don't know if i've read that anywhere did you get it can i can i ask you about that offer yeah sure so it was just a through sony and uh you know i just i it was it was it's interesting because at at this age now at 52 I kind of look back, I go, what, what difference would have made if I did sign a major label deal? I feel like nothing. There would be, I wouldn't be viewed any different, but I was still in my uh, mid-20s. And so I was very impressionable against uh, major label clapback. And I, I, I bought into that, which I think is foolish now, to be honest. And so it wasn't even a question at that time. I was like, no, I'm not doing this. Well, okay, that's super interesting. And that, like, kind of opens up, like, a whole, like, kind of can of worms I was hoping that we'd touch on. Like, like I mean, just simply, like, why, why do you now, like, looking back, kind of find it foolish? Because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a grown man now. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, look, I just look back and I think of all the bands that I like. So many bands on major labels I like. I don't dislike a band because they're on a major label. I just listen to bands, and I feel like just the times are different now. It was very uh, the woke culture of that time pre-internet was a lot of this. I mean, the the clapback of uh, 
I remember when Jawbreaker signed a major label. My God, they were they were crucified. It was it was horrible. Uh, and gr- of course, Green Day too. But they didn't. You know, they were the band that could care less, and they were became the biggest band in rock and roll. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you. Cause so kind of what the maybe like the thing you find foolish is not so much that like the major label offered you so much more and that you decide not to take it but like rather like the foolishness was like the worry about the sort of clap back of like being on a major label exactly i i was just i just thought i would never sign a major label that was not even an option i i had no desire yeah it's really interesting i actually i i'm curious about this because um i I, I was reminded of a band uh, from San Diego, and maybe you remember, maybe you don't, but like Go 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 Earhart. Not familiar. Okay, but like it was interesting. Like they they were on three one G, like the same with like the Locust and everything, and they never really got any plays. They never really went anywhere. But they're a band for like eight or nine years, and I somehow came across this article. I think it was like from like two thousand seven, like, and it was about their last show. And there was like a quote from one of the singers where he was like, "You know, it was a good run, but at least we never sold out to the man." And, and it just, it struck me because like, yeah, this time period, I'd say like late nineties, early two thousands, like that was such a sort of, um, ethos in a sense. And like, you know, a way of thinking that does to this day kind of feel a little archaic and like things have changed. And that does seem like a little silly now. I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think things have changed completely. It's a level playing field with digital streaming. Like, so you have bands that are blowing up without a major label, without any label. There are bands that are blown up on their own because of social media factors. If a band goes viral on TikTok, I have a good friend that um, went viral on TikTok and he makes a nice living now just doing nothing, <laughs> which, which is crazy. I mean, it's interesting though, because I'm curious how this kind of pairs, you know, I guess with your own sort of, approach to asian man you know like on the website it does say that um you know you've written that you did it for the love of music and like not for capitalist gain or status recognition and then you continue and you say you know i try to do my best to try to do the right things ethically to believe in helping others instead of striving for profit you know i'm curious when you look out to like the sort of like punk diy music scene or like even just like music the sort of music ecosphere in general do you still see these kind of ideas being valued and the sort of torch of these values being carried on yes 100 percent, and that that is alive and happening more so than uh you would you could imagine I, I don't know how old you are so it happened to me when i there was a lull in asian man where as i got older i kept releasing bands that were my age so in my 30s i'm releasing bands in their 30s and it took a good slap in the face for me to realize i need to start like listening to what the younger people are listening to because no one wants to buy old man music or and so yeah yeah just going back to like the house shows and where i'd be the oldest guy uh going back to gilman street and there there's just such a cool network of stuff that that young people are doing um especially in san jose where we don't have a it's it's crazy because we are the 10th largest city in the u.s we don't have an all-age venue that that puts on national acts. Like if you wanted to see a band like the bouncing souls, I don't think they've ever come to San Jose. I'm just using them as an example of a band that's been around that would play, you know, plays all age shows. And that could, that could go for like a hot water music or any, any 
like 500 to 1,000 cap band, it they've never played San Jose. It's crazy. At least they've never played an all-ages show in San Jose. We have some bars here. Uh, I think I've gotten off topic of your original question. I can't remember what you were talking about. <laughs> well, no, I, I mean, I guess I, I guess I'm just curious, like, like how that's the sort of um, the ethos that you express on the Asian Man website about, like, you know, not doing it for Got capital it, gain it. or status recognition, but just kind of doing it for the love of music and how that's kind yeah. of carried on. Yeah, I think it's very it's very much in play in 2022 and to the point of me even seeing more so. More so now than it was before. And uh, it's cool. It's cool to see from an older person looking in. I love like watching uh, like the communities just helping each other. And um, I kind of feel like, yeah, there's hope. This is still happening. And so I never want to get to the point where I, I don't go and support these young bands. And uh, I just don't want to be a dinosaur label where it's like I'm just releasing old man music yeah 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 the solo project of like the band after the band after the band <laughs> that like everybody got was originally into um and, well and, and i've done that too <laughs> yeah 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 which is okay too i mean there's a, there's obviously like a crowd out there for that as well you know there's nothing wrong with it but yeah i could see how you wouldn't want to just do that but like so this is interesting like when you see these when you kind of engage with these communities like this whole like sellout I ideology though you don't that doesn't seem to really exist as, as much anymore in your in in your view, or is it still kind of around? I think very little. Uh, it does exist, but I, to the degree of what it was in the '90s is is yin and yang. So I I I, I don't think it's that much of a an issue with especially with younger people. Yeah, and like what like I mean, obviously you know you you can't speak for them, but just kind of like in your experience, and also just like and your own experience as well, just getting older, like you know, like why do you why do you think that is? Just sort of like maybe a realization of like how hard it is just to make music, just to make like living in music. I don't know. I haven't really thought about that, but that's a good question. I I, I, I off the top of my head, I can't think of why that is. Um, if I had to guess, I would say, yeah. <laughs> Green Day? I don't know. I think it all stems. Yeah, yeah, to Green that's Day. a great answer. Yeah. yeah, that's a great answer. Yeah, because everybody likes Green Day. You know, older hats and all the young kids like Gilman Street. It's all. It, it, it's funny. So Gilman Street for a while it was it was all run. It was running into the same problems. It was just like all older people that were still there and they were losing that 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 voice of the youth. But now it's all young people that run Gilman, and they all love Green Day. So it's just like. It's just like it's it goes on. It never stops the the influence of that band, and so uh, I, that might be the answer. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Well, I mean, kind of going back to this whole community thing, I think it's really fascinating, and, and because there's kind of an ongoing theme that we've discussed on this podcast on other episodes around how like while local music scenes still very much exist, like maybe either the importance of that community or at least like how community is valued today has maybe waned a little bit because there's like this flattening of the world. And I mean, what I mean by that is that like, it's like so easy to access music now from like anywhere in the world that there's kind of like more of a reliance on the internet than like maintaining your DIY, like local venue. Mm. But like kind of, it sounds like what you're saying is that like, no, that that still very much exists there. And it's kind of like in step with that. Yeah. I, I don't see that at all. I, I feel like it is very much alive and uh, the communities in the Bay area, especially there's, you know, 
with with when you think of punk as a subculture, there's so many different scenes. Like you're just looking like at the hardcore scene or the ska scene or the metal scene um, or the pop punk scene, emo scene. It's all under this umbrella of underground music, but at the same time, a lot of those scenes are very different. Are are very. Um, I don't know if the if it's fair to say they're um, kind of individualized with with certain people. I I know there's there's definitely crossover with a lot of people, but sometimes I I'll see these shows. I'm like, man, why why does it always have to be? Like five hardcore bands, or, <laughs> yeah, or, or or five ska bands, <laughs> right? Or, or, and why can't bands pl- play together more often? And that's what I would like to see more of is just uh, mixed bill shows. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and like I feel like you would get that. Like I think about that plea for peace tour, and it was like, you know, you had like blue meanies lining up with like Lawrence Arms. <laughs> yeah, that was that was definitely a mixed bill. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which I really appreciated. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about just sort of like the nitty gritty of like, of of the label. Um, I'm kind of, I'm curious. I wanted to ask like about the kind of the agreements you make with bands when you decide to put out a record on Asian Man. I sure. think I I think I read somewhere it was like originally like a handshake agreement or something. Yeah, it still is. I've I've never done a contract with a band. So so what's so what is the actual agreement? So if it's like a new artist, let's say you are an artist, and I'm like, oh man, I I really like your music. Uh, would you be interested in doing a, a record together? And let's say you said yes. I would send an email to you, like breaking the, everything down, which would basically say um, it's a 50-50 split after costs. And uh, we kind of determine what I pay for, whether it be recording costs, obviously production costs, what the advertising budget is. It's all very small, by the way. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Of course, of course. Um but yeah, it's it's a profit share. But as as a band, like a uh, an alkaline trio, I give them a higher percentage. I give them seventy percent because at this point, it's like I don't feel like I deserve that much of the cut anymore. <laughs> yeah, because I'm not doing anything. I'm. It's not like I have to do anything. It just sells. So I'm more than happy to give the bands that have been if their records have been with me for 10 plus years and it's still selling like crazy, I, I usually give them 70%. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I, lo- I actually, my next question was kind of about Alkaline Trio because, um, yeah, I got a couple of, a couple of questions about them. So like when, when you put out, God damn it, I read somewhere that they paid like, I, I like an interview. 1,000. Yeah. They $1, paid $1,000. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Cause I think Skiba said he like paid, he like recorded it for like $900 or something like that. <laughs> yeah. That, that could be right. I know it was just like a, a thousand dollar figure is in my head because it's just so cheap. It's so cheap. I mean, gosh, for a new alkaline trio record, they pay $1,000 for w- one day of recording. So <laughs> it's so, wild. so obviously we're like talking about like their debut God damn, God damn it. So I'm curious, like, so the the agreement was kind of similar with them. It was just sort of this like handshake fifty fifty agreement. Exactly. Interesting. And so I'm curious, like, just because Aqualad and Trio remains like a pretty popular band today, like getting millions of spins on Spotify and stuff, like, mm-hmm. did Aqualad and Trio eventually like buy back the? I mean, I don't. I guess it wouldn't. I guess this wouldn't be the case. But like, who if if they wanted to like re like who releases God Damn It now? Is it would it still be on Asian Man or would it be like with mm-hmm. the label they're on now? No, it's Asian man. I I have God damn it. Maybe I'll catch fire and the singles, the first singles collection. 
And is that still all just like kind of just an agreement that you you have with the guys or like have you actually like made that in writing? And I only ask because of the fact that Alkaline Trio is like so big now. Yeah, same. Never, never signed anything. Wow. That's cool. That's cool. That says that says a lot about them as well, about how they've remained pretty, pretty down to earth. It sounds like. <laughs> well, I, th- I think it's safe to say that I've paid them more money than any other record label. And I only have those two full lengths and a, and a collections record. So they know. And I'll say that for every band I've worked with. I want every band to go on to bigger and better things because I pay them more. Doesn't mean I'm doing more for them. A lot of times when bands go to bigger labels, there's a lot more costs involved. But the bottom line is when they start seeing royalty checks, if those checks pale in comparison to what my checks come out to. And it's, and it's something I'm proud of. I'm proud to be able to, and you know, Asian man is, I don't have one employee. It's just me. It's oh, okay. Me. I read somewhere that you, at one point you had to like, you like yeah. periodically would have one employee. Yeah, I had I had at the at the peak we had two full time employees and a bunch of interns and volunteers, but it's just easier this way. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah. So so like um, this is kind of going a little bit like outside of the realm of just like how Asian Man works. But I read this quote somewhere from you that said like so many people my age are stuck in the back back in my day was so much better bullshit, but back in the mm-hmm. day was not so much better. Um. And there's also this kind of reoccurring theme in our podcast that like uh, that's really similar where like people always want to look back towards a better time in the music industry, but there kind of never was really a golden era. But I am curious, like how difficult or like what are the differences now now in like running a small label in comparison to say like when you first started, like, you know, 20 plus years ago? Like, do you think that someone who could, could start a label like Asian Man today and still have the same sort of, you know, quote unquote success that you've had? Sure. I think they could have the same success, maybe not monetarily because physical sales are such a minority part of the uh, um, sales these days. Uh, but you could have an, uh, as as powerful an effect as me in terms of breaking bands or kind of uh, continuing to grow communities through this um, underground music that you're putting out. Uh, I think now more than ever i don't i don't understand why all bands don't just put out their own music and keep the money because it's all streaming revenue why pay someone else to even do it the only the only reason i can see is because they want to be part of a community yeah and so i guess that's probably how you kind of view asian man at this point i imagine i do and and i know that when i do talk to bands I try to talk them out of it. I I try to get to the bottom of why do they want to work with me? And it comes down to, we just want to be part of that community, that history. And that's, it's flattering. And I I appreciate that quite a bit, but I do try to tell them that um, what I do is very limited. You're not going to become famous because I put out your record and uh, you could probably do a better job than me. (laughs) (laughs) that's so fun well like well i guess like i guess then you know you mentioned the streaming and everything like has like you know the kind of change in formats because obviously like asian man has has gone through a lot of multiple format changes like cd to mp3 and now streaming and kind of like sort of back to vinyl or anything like like what has the effect of that been on asian man and its roster and also like has it kind of made running a label more difficult I, i think it's made it more easy um so if if you look at the 
the height of physical sales through the 90s, I mean, you're dealing with, I mean, I was pressing sometimes 30 to 50,000 CDs of one release. That's a lot of space. <laughs> I want to know what, what bands, what, what albums? Oh my gosh. So there's this band called Let's Go Bowling. That was my first, uh, yeah. I did a live record. I, 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 I printed way too much, but I printed 50,000 to start. <laughs> <laughs> All in a garage. Well, we, luckily we had a distributor because there's no way I would have been able to house all that stuff. So um, our, we were distributed by Mordam, um, this great indie distributor in San Francisco, and you would just drop ship it to the warehouse there. And so if you compare the 90s to 2020 in terms of wanting to do a DIY label, I think it's a lot easier now because every kid who has a computer can put up a release on all the platforms, whether it be Apple music, Spotify, Tidal, Amazon music, there's a level playing field. Like your music can be up there. It can be accessible. And with Bandcamp too, it's a cool, a cool medium. And then you can even set up your store through Bandcamp. So there's a lot of, lot of uh, advantages to the technology nowadays versus what it was back then when, you're still reliant on a lot of physical mail outs that cost a ton of money. Um, sending out like newsletters through the mail, physical mail. My, that's expensive. Yeah, I'm printing all that and everything. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, do you, but like, I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure there's been kind of like a, have you seen like a, cause I, there's a narrative around, you know, obviously like the fractions of pennies that like bands get on streaming. Like, have you seen a kind of a drop in revenue? Like, you know, in that time as well though? Oh, of course. There's I don't make nearly what I did once upon a time, but it's a lot less work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so with any label, no matter what the label says, there's no label that's making more off physical than digital. Digital is the main income for every record label, big or small. That's how they're making money. And it is it is pennies on the dollar, but and let me try to I'm, I'm I'm trying to spin a positive of of streaming uh, what I like. Let's say I put out uh, a reissue of uh, a classic Alkaline Trio record. Let's say it's the 30 year anniversary of God Damn It. And I press like three different variants. All those Alkaline Trio collectors are going to buy every color. And they're not going to listen to them. They're just going to stream it. So I still get that revenue from the physical sales and they're streaming it pennies on the dollar again, but it's just free money. That's how I view it. Uh, I'm just, that's just this one positive twist. Obviously I don't, I don't think it's a fair uh, rate that they're giving artists at all, but that's the only positive is it's, I kind of, when I do get those digital checks, it's, kind of feels like free money because what did i really do other than um upload it to the server yeah that's interesting i mean do you is there any kind of like nostalgia or a sense of feeling like kind of trapped in this in this sort of like current state of like what the format is which is streaming like i mean is do you ever feel like a desire for like man like uh like looking towards other alternatives or anything like or you know i don't know like what, like how about the negative side of things, you know? Well, I, I don't see it 
a negative because I still do physical on every release and I, and I always do vinyl. So it's the format that I am most fond of, albeit it's the most expensive and time consuming, but I'm still releasing physical. I still do mail order every day. So I still get that tangible feeling of, of touching the record, seeing the needle hit the groove, hearing the sounds come out of it. So that part still feels very normal to me. So I don't feel any guilt that um, that digital has, has taken over the landscape as a majority. Yeah. And I'm sure you've, I mean, I, I don't want to assume, but I'm sure you've also seen kind of like an increase in like vinyl sales as well. Yeah. And I, I felt like I was on top of that before the vinyl craze hit mainstream. Like I felt like 20 years ago, I felt it increasing and I'll, it really changed the landscape of how I did things. Whereas other labels were continuing to stick with the CD format. I saw that vinyl change happening and, um, embarrassingly, I, <laughs> I've been sold my entire personal record collection because the prices I was getting on eBay were so high. I was like, I can't not sell. Oh my gosh. What, what, what year was this? When did you do this? Oh my God. I'd say like, Early 2000s. Early 2000s, there was like this message board called Vinyl Collective, and it was just crazy. People were paying so much for records, and I had this massive collection that I had uh, garnered through the decades of buying music. And I was like, I had gone through and continued to go through this phase of just kind of wanting to be a minimalist. I was like, I don't need these records. So I just sold everything. Everything I had that was of value, I sold. Wow. Wow. That's interesting. So I actually, I wanted to go back to like one more question um, about uh, early Asian man. Um, and I think it's just really interesting because early on Asian man had all these Chicago bands on their roster, but you're, you know, you're obviously based in the Bay area. And like, this feels to me like pretty unique for the time period, like in the like kind of mid, like late nineties. Cause it seems like a lot of independent labels are really orange oriented around a specific location and that sort of sure. surrounding scene. And I know, I know that like, it kind of all started with like that, the sort of cult favorite ska band slapstick, but like, how did yep. you like originally get kind of get linked with them? And then like this whole scene in Chicago. Yeah. It's, it's all <laughs> because of slapstick. Uh, they, they opened up for skank and pickle, my band at the time in Chicago. And we had just started releasing records. We we had our own label called Dill Records. And then uh, we decided we wanted to start releasing other bands that we had met on tour. And Slapstick was one of them. Yeah. Okay. And then it just kind of all cascaded from there. Exactly. Like they broke up. So the family tree is long and deep, but it goes Slapstick broke up. And that went into the Broadways and Tuesday. And then... Then Tuesday broke up. Dan joined Alkaline Trio. Broadway's broke up. Uh, Chris and Brendan went to Lawrence Arms. Dan Hannaway did Honor System. Uh, <laughs> and it's just, it was the gift that kept giving. Yeah, I mean, I was following it back then. I mean, I, I grew up kind of like a huge fan of the Lawrence Arms. And obviously, they went back through that family tree and everything. And it's funny you mentioned Tuesday because, like, Tuesday was always a like a cult favorite of mine that I would push on people that who are like, hadn't heard it. Um, and yeah. And I, I actually kind of curious how much that Tuesday record's going for now on eBay. <laughs> huh. 
<laughs> not much. We just repressed it, actually. Oh, okay, so. okay. <laughs> Let's maybe like wrap up discussing like a sort of cottage theory we discuss here on the on the podcast, like about MySpace. Uh, Sam, my co-host, has often noted how like MySpace kind of inadvertently became this archive of like emo punk culture in the sort of early to mid two thousands that was like wiped clean by like, you know like a supposed mistake made by some employee years later where like literally millions of profiles were erased i mean it's a pretty loose question but like do you you know do you have a, like have you ever like thought or lamented about the disappearance of like what was kind of archived on that on myspace and like you know is there any kind of relation to sort of like the scenes that you existed in or like asian man heck yeah myspace was so amazing because you had those band profiles and it would automatically go to that music player oh yeah so you could before before streaming was was uh 100 the norm you could just go to myspace and check out bands so if you were like a kid in suburban middle america and you want to listen to music that that's uh i guess not deemed appropriate by your parents you just hop on the computer go to myspace and you could go through a rabbit hole of like you enjoy this one band and it's gonna you'll find their top eight friends and maybe one of the another band will be in there you could just keep listening and listening it was awesome yeah and it, it's it, i know we all kind of like migrated to like another platform but it was all kind of like existing there still like as this like archive and then it just got completely deleted which is just it feels like from a historical standpoint like sam's a phd historian it just feels like a historical standpoint also just like such a shame that like that whole archive is like completely missing now. it's it's terrible because i guarantee if it was still up there could be a resurgence of people going back to myspace as a nostalgia factor I would go back if I knew people were still on MySpace. I'd go back. Yeah, yeah. I'd I'd start up the Asian Man player again and have people be able to listen to songs as soon as they hit the page. It'd be amazing. Yeah, yeah. I guess I never thought about that though. That is true. It was kind of like an early sort of like streaming sampling like platform as well. With like when it came to like the the music the music pages on it. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. It was it was awesome, and I and I too went down those rabbit holes of just listening to music. It also kind of feels like um, it was uh, uh, might have been like a way another re- kind of an, might increase revenue streams for like or album sales perhaps because you know you can get somebody like in Poland like checking out you know like a MU three thirty record or something. <laughs> yeah, and I remember it was a good way to promote like your gigs too, if I if I remember correctly. I think you were able to set up an event page. Um I, I could be totally wrong. Maybe I'm thinking of Facebook, but No, no, no. I yeah, I think I think I remember that. Yeah, definitely. Or you can like post it or something. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. Well so like like one last question, um, which is just speaking of like of uh re- you know kind of thinking about revivals and like you know that the the late 90s early 2000s i'm curious when it comes to asian man have you seen any sort of like resurgence um in like specific albums being like bought perhaps like from like far flung flung places like i know like you know eastern europe went through like a weird like third wave ska phase and stuff like that like that have kind of surprised you not out of the u.s but just in general vinyl sales i I've, i am repressing so many records that have been out of print for decades because there's a demand now. So a lot of the old releases that got a pressing in 1996 are coming back because there's demand. 